0: Betsy is learning so much at the Putney farm. In addition to helping out around the kitchen and learning to sew, Betsy is also learning compassion and how to care for others. She even has to figure out how to save little Molly when she falls into the wolf pit. How can she still be the same timid little girl who was so fearful of going to stay with the Putney cousins? Now sit back, relax and listen to this story come to life. Understood Betsy. Chapter 7. Elizabeth Ann fails in an examination. I wonder if you can guess the name of a little girl who, about a month after this, was walking along through the melting snow in the woods with a big black dog running circles around her. Yes, all alone in the woods, with a terrible great dog beside her and yet not a bit afraid. You don't suppose it could be Elizabeth Ann? Well, whoever she was, she had something on her mind, for she walked more and more slowly and had only a very absent-minded pat for the dog's head when he thrust it up for a caress. When the wood road led into a clearing in which there was a rough little house of slabs, the child stopped altogether and looking down, began nervously to draw lines in the snow with her overshoe. You see, something perfectly dreadful had happened in school that day. The superintendent, the all-important, seldom-seen superintendent, came to visit the school, and the children were given some examinations so he could see how they were getting on. Now, you know what an examination did to Elizabeth Ann or haven't I told you yet? Well, if I haven't, it's because words fail me. If there's anything horrid that an examination didn't do to Elizabeth Ann, I have yet to hear of it. It began years ago, before ever she went to school, when she heard Aunt Frances talking about how she had dreaded examinations when she was a child, and how they dried up her mouth and made her ears ring, and her head ache, and her knees get all weak, and her mind a perfect blank, so that she didn't know what two and two made. Of course, Elizabeth Ann didn't feel all those things right off at her first examination, but by the time she had had several and had rushed to tell Aunt Frances about how awful they were, and the two of them had sympathized with one another and compared symptoms, and then wept about her resulting low marks, why... She not only had all the symptoms Aunt Frances had ever had, but a good many more of her own invention. Well, she had had them all, and had them hard this afternoon when the superintendent was there. Her mouth had gone dry, and her knees had shaken, and her elbows had felt as though they had no more bones in them than so much jelly, and her eyes had smarted, and oh, what answers she had made! That dreadful, tight panic had clutched at her throat whenever the superintendent had looked over at her, and she had disgraced herself ten times over. She went hot and cold to think of it, and felt quite sick with hurt vanity. She, who did so well every day, and was so much looked up to by her classmates, what must they be thinking of her? To tell the truth, She had been crying as she walked along through the woods, because she was so sorry for herself. Her eyes were all red still, and her throat sore from the big lump in it. And now she would live it all over again, as she told the Putney cousins. For, of course, they must be told. She had always told Aunt Frances everything that happened in school. It happened that Aunt Abigail had been taking a nap when she got home from school and so she had come out to the sap house, where Cousin Anne and Uncle Henry were making syrup, to have it over with as soon as possible. She went up to the little slab house now, dragging her feet, and opened the door. Cousin Anne, in a very short old skirt and a man's coat and high rubber boots, was just poking some more wood into the big fire, which blazed furiously under the broad flat pan where the sap was boiling. The rough brown hut was filled with white steam and that sweetest of all odors, hot maple syrup. Cousin Ann turned her head, her face red with the heat of the fire, and nodded at the child. Hello, Betsy. You're just in time. I've saved out a cup of hot syrup for you, all ready to wax. Betsy hardly heard this although she had been wild about waxed sugar on snow ever since her very first taste of it. Cousin Anne, she said unhappily, the superintendent visited our school this afternoon. Did he? said Cousin Anne, dipping a thermometer into the boiling syrup. Yes, and we had examinations, said Betsy. Did you? said Cousin Anne, holding the thermometer up to the light and looking at it. And you you know how perfectly awful examinations make you feel, said Betsy, very near to tears again. Why, no, said Cousin Anne, sorting over the syrup tins. They never made me feel awful. I thought they were sort of fun. Fun? cried Betsy indignantly, staring through the beginning of her tears. Why, yes, like taking a dare, don't you know? Somebody stumps you to jump off the hitching post, and you do it to show them. I always used to think examinations were like that. Somebody stumps you to spell pneumonia, and you'd do it to show them. Here's your cup of syrup. You'd better go right out and wax it while it's hot. Elizabeth Ann automatically took the cup in her hand, but she did not look at it. But supposing you get so scared you can't spell pneumonia or anything else, she said feelingly. That's what happened to me. You know how your mouth gets all dry and your knees she stopped. Cousin Anne had said she did not know all about those things. Well, anyhow, I got so scared I could hardly stand up, and I made the most awful mistakes, things I know so well. I spelled doubt without any "b" and separate without an e. I said Iowa was bounded on the north by Wisconsin, and I... Oh, well, said Cousin Anne, it doesn't matter if you really know the right answers, does it? that's the important thing. This was an idea which had never, in all her life, entered Betsy's brain, and she did not take it in now. She only shook her head miserably and went on in a doleful tone. And I said thirteen and eight or twenty-two, and I wrote March without any capital M, and I, look here, Betsy, do you want to tell me all this? Cousin Anne spoke in the quick ringing voice, she had once in a while, which made everybody from old Shep up open his eyes and get his wits about him. Betsy gathered hers and thought hard, and she came to an unexpected conclusion: No, she didn't really want to tell Cousin Anne all about it. Why was she doing it because she thought that was the thing to do because if you don't really want to went on cousin Anne, I don't see that it's going to do anybody any good. I guess Hemlock Mountain will just stand right there the same as if you did forget to put a bee in doubt, and your syrup will be too cool to wax right if you don't take it out pretty soon. She turned back to stoke the fire, and Elizabeth Ann, in a daze, found herself walking out of the door. It fell shut after her, and there she was under the clear, pale blue sky, with the sun just hovering over the rim of Hemlock Mountain. She looked up at the big mountains, all blue and silver, with shadows and snow, and wondered what in the world Cousin Anne had meant. Of course Hemlock Mountain would stand there just the same. But what of it? What did that have to do with her arithmetic, with anything? She had failed in her examination, hadn't she? She found a clean white snowbank under a pine tree and setting her cup of syrup down in a safe place, began to pat the snow down hard to make the right bed for the waxing of the syrup. The sun, very hot for that late March day, brought out strongly the tarry perfume of the big pine tree. Near her the sap dripped musically into a bucket, already half full, hung on a maple tree. A blue jay rushed suddenly through the upper branches of the wood, his screaming and chattering voice sounding like noisy children at play. Elizabeth Ann took up her cup and poured some of the thick hot syrup out on the hard snow, making loops and circles as she poured. It stiffened and hardened at once, and she lifted up a great coil of it, threw her head back, and let it drop into her mouth. Concentrated sweetness of summer days was in that mouthful, Part of it still hot and aromatic, part of it icy and wet with melting snow. She crunched it all together into a big, delicious lump and sucked on it dreamily. Her eyes on the rim of Hemlock Mountain, high above her there, the snow on it bright golden in the sunlight. Uncle Henry had promised to take her up to the top as soon as the snow went off. She wondered what the top of a mountain would be like. Uncle Henry had said the main thing was that you could see so much of the world at once. He said it was too queer the way your own house and the big barn and great fields looked like little toy things that weren't of any account. It was because you could see so much more than just the, "Ah!" she heard an imploring whine and a cold nose was thrust into her hand. Why, there was old Shep. Begging for his share of waxed sugar, he loved it though it did stick to his teeth, so she poured out another lot and gave half of it to Shep. It immediately stuck his jaws tight together, and he began pawing at his mouth and shaking his head till Betsy had to laugh. Then he managed to pull his jaws apart and chewed loudly and visibly, tossing his head, opening his mouth wide till Betsy could see the sticky brown candy draped in melting festoons all over his big white teeth and red gullet. Then with a gulp he had swallowed it all down and was whining for more, striking softly at the little girl's skirt with his forepaw. "'Oh, you eat it too fast!' cried Betsy. But she shared her next lot with him, too. The sun had gone down over Hemlock Mountain by this time, and the big slope above her was all deep blue shadow. The mountain looked much higher now as the dusk began to fall, and loomed up bigger and bigger, as though it reached up to the sky. It was no wonder houses looked small from its top. Betsy ate the last of her sugar, looking up at the quiet giant there, towering grandly above her. There was no lump in her throat now although she still thought she did not know what in the world Cousin Anne meant by saying that about Hemlock Mountain and her examination. It's my opinion that she had made a good beginning of an understanding. She was just picking up her cup to take it back to the sap house when Shep growled a little and stood with his ears and tail up, looking down the road. Something was coming down that road in the blue-clear twilight, something that was making a very queer noise. It sounded almost like somebody crying. It was somebody crying. It was a child crying. It was a little, little girl. Betsy could see her now, stumbling along and crying as though her heart would break. Why, it was little Molly, her own particular charge at school, whose reading lesson she heard every day. Betsy and Shep ran to meet her. What's the matter, Molly? What's the matter? Betsy knelt down and put her arms around the weeping child. Did you fall down? Did you hurt you? What are you doing way off here? Did you lose your way? I don't want to go away. I don't want to go away, said Molly over and over, clinging tightly to Betsy. It was a long time before Betsy could quiet her enough to find out what had happened. Then she made out between Molly's sobs that her mother had been taken suddenly sick and had to go away to a hospital, and that left nobody at home to take care of Molly, and she was to be sent away to some strange relatives in the city who didn't want her at all and who said so right out. Elizabeth Ann knew all about that her heart swelled big with sympathy. For a moment, she stood again out on the sidewalk in front of the Lathrop house, with old Mrs. Lathrop's ungracious white head bobbing from a window, and she knew again that ghastly feeling of being unwanted. She knew why little Molly was crying, and she shut her hands together hard and made up her mind that she would help her out. Do you know what she did right off? Without thinking about it, she didn't go and look up Aunt Abigail. She didn't wait till Uncle Henry came back from his round of emptying sap buckets into the big tub on his sled. As fast as her feet could carry her, she flew back to Cousin Ann in the sap house. I can't tell you, except again that Cousin Ann was Cousin Ann, why it was that Betsy ran so fast to her and was so sure that everything would be all right as soon as cousin Anne knew about it. But whatever the reason was, it was a good one, for though cousin Anne did not stop to kiss Molly, or even to look at her for more than one sharp first glance, she said after a moment's pause, during which she filled a syrup can and screwed the cover down very tight, well, if her folks will let her stay, how would you like to have Molly come and stay with us till her mother gets back from the hospital? Now you've got a room of your own. I guess if you wanted to, you could have her sleep with you. Oh, Molly, 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 shouted Betsy, jumping up and down, and then hugging the little girl with all her might. Oh, it will be like having a little sister. Cousin Anne sounded a dry warning note. Don't be too sure her folks will let her. We don't know about them yet. Betsy ran to her and caught her hand, looking up at her with great shining eyes. Cousin Anne, if you go to see them and ask them, they will. This made even Cousin Anne give a little abashed smile of pleasure, although she made her face grave again at once and said, You'd better go along back to the house now, Betsy. It's time for you to help Mother with the supper. The two children trotted back along the darkening wood road, Shep running before them little Molly clinging fast to the older child's hand. Aren't you ever afraid, Betsy, in the woods this way? She asked admiringly, looking about her with timid eyes. Oh no, said Betsy protectively. There's nothing to be afraid of, except getting off on the wrong fork of the road near Wolf Pit. Oh, ow, said Molly, scringing. What's the Wolf Pit? What an awful name. Betsy laughed. She tried to make her laugh sound brave like Cousin Anne's, which always seemed so scornful of being afraid. As a matter of fact, she was beginning to fear that they had made the wrong turn, and she was not quite sure that she could find the way home. But she put this out of her mind and walked along very fast, peering ahead into the dusk. "'It hasn't anything to do with wolves,' she said in answer to Molly's question. "'Anyhow, not now.' It's just a big, deep hole in the ground where a brook had dug out a cave. Uncle Henry told me all about it when he showed it to me. And then part of the roof caved in. Sometimes there's ice in the corner of the covered part all the summer, Aunt Abigail says. Why do you call it the Wolf Pit? asked Molly, walking very close to Betsy and holding very tightly to her hand. Oh, long, ever so long ago, when the first settlers came up here, They heard a wolf howling all night, and when it didn't stop in the morning, they came up here on the mountain and found a wolf had fallen in and couldn't get out. My, I hope they killed him, said Molly. Gracious, that was more than a hundred years ago, said Betsy. She was not thinking of what she was saying. She was thinking that if they were on the right road, they ought to be home by this time. She was thinking that the right road ran downhill to the house all the way, and this certainly seemed to be going up a little. She was wondering what had become of Shep. Stand here just a minute, Molly, she said. I want, I just want to go ahead a little bit and see, and see. She darted on around a curve of the road and stood there, her heart sinking. The road turned there and led straight up the mountain. For just a moment, the little girl felt a wild impulse to burst out in a shriek for Aunt Frances and to run crazily away, anywhere so long as she was running. But the thought of Molly standing back there, trustfully waiting to be taken care of, shut Betsy's lips together hard before her screams of fright got out. She stood still, thinking, now she mustn't get frightened. All they had to do was to walk back along the road till they came to the fork and then make the right turn. But what if they didn't get back to the turn till it was so dark they couldn't see it? Well, she mustn't think of that. She ran back calling, Come on, Molly. In a tone she tried to make as firm as Cousin Ann's. I guess we have made the wrong turn after all. We'd better... (gasps) But there was no Molly there in the brief moment betsy had stood thinking molly had disappeared the long shadowy road held not a trace of her then betsy was frightened and then she did begin to scream at the top of her voice molly molly she was beside herself with terror and started back hastily to hear molly's voice very faint apparently coming from the ground under her feet oh oh Betsy, get me out, get me out. Where are you, shrieked Betsy. I don't know, came Molly's sobbing voice. I just moved the least little bit out of the road and slipped on the ice and began to slide, and I couldn't stop myself, and I fell down into a deep hole. Betsy's head felt as though her hair were standing straight on end with horror. Molly must have fallen down into the wolf pit. Yes, they were quite near it. She remembered now that big white birch tree stood right at the place where the brook tumbled over the edge and fell into it. Although she was dreadfully afraid of falling in herself, she went cautiously over to the tree, feeling her way with her foot, to make sure she did not slip, and peered down into the cavernous gloom below. Yes, there was Molly's little face, just a white speck. The child was crying, "'sobbing and holding up her arms to Betsy. "'Are you hurt, Molly? "'No, I fell into a big snowbank, "'but I'm all wet and frozen and I want to get out. "'I want to get out.' "'Betsy held on to the birch tree. "'Her head whirled. "'What should she do? "'Look here, Molly,' she called down. "'I'm going to run back along to the right road "'and back to the house and get Uncle Henry. "'He'll come with a rope and get you out.' At this, Molly's crying rose to a frantic scream. Oh, Betsy, don't leave me here alone. Don't, don't, the wolves will get me. Betsy, don't leave me alone. The child was wild with terror. But I can't get you out myself, screamed back Betsy, crying herself. Her teeth were chattering with the cold. Don't go, don't go, came up from the darkness of the pit in a piteous howl. Betsy made a great effort. And stopped crying. She sat down on a stone and tried to think, and this is what came into her mind as a guide. What would Cousin Anne do if she were here? She wouldn't cry she would think of something. Betsy looked around her desperately. The first thing she saw was the big limb of a pine tree, broken off by the wind which half lay and half slantingly stood up against a tree a little distance above the mouth of the pit. It had been there so long that the needles had dried and fallen off. And the skeleton of the branch with the broken stubs looked like Yes it looked like a ladder. That was what Cousin Anne would have done. Wait a minute wait a minute, Molly, she called wildly down the pit, warm all over in excitement. Now listen, "'You go off there in a corner, where the ground makes sort of a roof. "'I'm going to throw down something you can climb up on, maybe.' "'Ow, ow, it'll hit me!' cried poor little Molly, more and more frightened. "'But she scrambled off under her shelter obediently, "'while Betsy struggled with the branch. "'It was so firmly embedded in the snow "'that at first she could not budge it at all. "'But after she cleared that away,' and pried hard with the stick she was using as a lever, she felt it give a little. She bore down with all her might, throwing her weight again and again on her lever, and finally felt the big branch move. After that, it was easier, as its course was downhill over the snow to the mouth of the pit. Glowing and pushing, wet with perspiration, she slowly maneuvered it along to the edge turned it squarely, gave it a great shove, and leaned over anxiously. Then she gave a great sigh of relief. Just as she had hoped, it went down sharp end first and stuck fast in the snow, which had saved Molly from broken bones. She was so out of breath with her work that for a moment she could not speak. Then, Molly, there, now I guess you can climb up to where I can reach you. Molly made a rush for any way out of her prison, and climbed like the practiced squirrel that she was, up from one stub to another, to the top of the branch. She was still below the edge of the pit there, but Betsy lay flat down on the snow, and held out her hands. Molly took hold hard, and digging her toes into the snow, slowly wormed her way up to the surface of the ground. It was then at that very moment that Shep came bounding up to them, barking loudly, and after him, Cousin Anne striding along in her rubber boots with the lantern in her hand and a rather anxious look on her face. She stopped short and looked at the two little girls covered with snow, their faces flaming with excitement, and the black hole gaping behind them. I always told Father we ought to put a fence around that pit, she said in a matter-of-fact voice. "Some day a sheep's going to fall down there. Shep came along to the house without you, and we thought most likely you'd taken the wrong turn. Betsy felt terribly aggrieved. She wanted to be petted and praised for her heroism. She wanted Cousin Anne to realize, oh, if only Aunt Frances were there, she would realize. I fell down in the hole, and Betsy wanted to go and get Mr. Putney, but I wouldn't let her, and so she threw down a big branch and I climbed out, explained Molly, who, now that her danger was past, took Betsy's action quite as a matter of course. Oh, that was how it happened, said Cousin Anne. She looked down the hole and saw the big branch, and looked back and saw the long trail of crushed snow where Betsy had dragged it. "'Well, now, that was quite a good idea for a little girl to have,' she said briefly. "'I guess you'll do to take care of Molly all right.' She spoke in her usual voice and immediately drew the children after her. But Betsy's heart was singing joyfully as she trotted along, clasping Cousin Anne's strong hand. Now she knew that Cousin Anne realized. She trotted fast, smiling to herself in the darkness.' What made you think of doing that? asked Cousin Anne presently as they approached the house. Why, I tried to think what you would have done if you'd been there, said Betsy. Oh, said Cousin Anne, well. She didn't say another word, but Betsy, glancing up into her face as they stepped into the lighted room, saw an expression that made her give a little skip and hop of joy. She had pleased Cousin Anne. That night as she lay in her bed, her arm over Molly cuddled up warm beside her. She remembered ever so faintly, as something of no importance, that she had failed in an examination that afternoon. Chapter 8. Betsy Starts a Sewing Society. Betsy and Molly had taken Deborah to school with them. Deborah was the old wooden doll with brown painted curls. She had lain in a trunk almost ever since Aunt Abigail's childhood, because Cousin Anne had never cared for dolls when she was a little girl. At first, Betsy had not dared to ask to see her, much less to play with her. But when Ellen, as she had promised, came over to Putney Farm that first Saturday, she had said right out as soon as she landed in the house, "'Oh, Mrs. Putney, can't we play with Deborah?' And Aunt Abigail had answered, why, yes, of course. I knew there was something I've kept forgetting. She went up with them herself to the cold attic and opened the little hair trunk under the eaves. There lay a doll, flat on her back, looking up at them brightly out of her blue eyes. Well, Debbie, dear, said Aunt Abigail, taking her up gently. It's a good long time since you and I played under the lilac bushes, isn't it? I expect you've been pretty lonesome up here all these years. Never you mind. You'll have some good times again now. She pulled down the doll's full ruffled skirt, straightened the lace at the neck of her dress, and held her for a moment, looking down at her silently. You could tell by the way she spoke, by the way she touched Deborah, by the way she looked at her, that she had loved the doll dearly, and maybe still did a little. When she put Deborah into Betsy's arms, the child felt that she was receiving something precious, almost something alive. She and Ellen looked with delight at the yards and yards of pico edged ribbon, sewn on by hand to the ruffles of the skirt, and lifted up the silk folds to admire the carefully made full petticoats and frilly drawers, the pretty soft old kid shoes and white stockings. Aunt Abigail looked at them with an absent smile on her lips, as though she were living over old scenes. Finally, it's too cold to play up here, she said, coming to herself with a long breath. You'd better bring Deborah and the trunk down to the south room. She carried the doll, and Betsy and Ellen each took an end of the old trunk, no larger than a modern suitcase. They settled themselves on the big couch back of the table with the lamp. Old Shep was on it, but Betsy coaxed him off by putting down some bones Cousin Ann had been saving for him. When he finished those and came back for the rest of his snooze, he found his place occupied by the little girls, sitting cross-legged, examining the contents of the trunk, all spread out around them. Shep sighed deeply and sat down with his nose resting on the couch near Betsy's knee, following their movements with his kind, dark eyes. Once in a while, Betsy stopped hugging Deborah or exclaiming over a new dress long enough to pat Shep's head and fondle his ears. This was what he was waiting for, and every time she did it, he wagged his tail thumpingly against the floor. After that, Deborah and her trunk were kept downstairs where Betsy could play with her. Often she was taken to school. You never heard of such a thing as taking a doll to school, did you? Well, I told you this was a queer, old-fashioned school. As a matter of fact, it was not only Betsy who took her doll to school. All the little girls did, whenever they felt like it. Miss Benton, the teacher, had a shelf for them in the entryway, where the wraps were hung, and the dolls sat on it and waited patiently all through the lessons. At recess time or at noon, each little mother snatched her own child and began to play. As soon as it grew warm enough to play outdoors, without just racing around every minute to keep from freezing to death, the dolls and their mothers went out to a great pile of rocks at one end of the bare stony field, which was the playground. There they sat and played in the spring sunshine, warmer from day to day. There were a great many holes and shelves and pockets, and little caves in the rocks, which made lovely places for playing house. Each little girl had her own particular cubbyholes and rooms, and they visited their dolls back and forth all around the pile. And as they played, they talked very fast about all sorts of things, being little girls and not boys, who just yelled and howled as they played ball or duck on a rock or prisoner's goal. "'racing and running and wrestling noisily all around the rocks. "'There was one little child who neither played with the girls "'nor ran and whooped with the boys. "'This was little six-year-old Lias, "'one of the two boys in Molly's first grade. "'At recess time, he generally hung about the school door by himself, "'looking moodily down "'and knocking the toe of his ragged, muddy shoe against a stone.' The little girls were talking about him one day as they played. "'My, isn't that Lias Brewster the horridest-looking child,' said Eliza, who had the second grade all to herself, although Molly now read out of the second reader with her. "'Mercy, yes, so ragged,' said Anastasia Monahan, called Stashy for short. She was a big girl, fourteen years old, who was in the seventh grade." He doesn't look as if he ever combed his hair, said Betsy. It just looks like a wisp of old hay. And sometimes, little Molly said proudly, adding her bit to the talk of the other girls, he forgets to put on any stockings, and he just has his dreadful old shoes on over his dirty bare feet. I guess he hasn't got any stockings half the time, said Big Stashy scornfully. I guess his stepfather drinks em up. How can he drink up stockings, asked Molly, opening her round eyes very wide. Shh, you mustn't ask. Little girls shouldn't know about such things, should they, Betsy? No, indeed, said Betsy, looking mysterious. As a matter of fact, she herself had no idea what Stashy meant, but she looked wise and said nothing. Some of the boys had squatted down near the rocks for a game of marbles now. Well, anyhow, said Molly resentfully, I don't care what his stepfather does to his stockings. I wish Elias would wear them to school, and lots of times he hasn't done anything under those horrid old overalls either. I can see his bare skin through the torn places. I wish he didn't have to sit so near me, said Betsy complainingly. He's so dirty. Well, I don't want him near me either, cried all the other little girls at once. Ralph glanced up at them frowning from where he knelt with his middle finger crooked behind a marble ready for a shot. He looked as he always did, rough and half-threatening. "'You girls make me sick,' he said. He sent his marble straight to the mark, pocketed his opponents, and stood up, scowling at the little mothers. "'I guess if you had to live the way he does, you'd be dirty. Half the time he don't get anything to eat before he comes to school, and if my mother didn't put up some extra for him in my box,' "'He wouldn't get any lunch, neither. "'And then you go and jump on him.' "'Why doesn't his own mother put up his lunch?' "'Bitsy challenged their critic. "'He hasn't got any mother. "'She's dead,' said Ralph, "'turning away with his hands in his pockets. "'He yelled to the boys, "'Come on, fellows, beat you to the bridge and back,' "'and was off, with the others racing at his heels. "'Well, anyhow, I don't care. "'He's dirty and horrid,' said Stashy emphatically.' looking over at the drooping, battered little figure, leaning against the school door, listlessly kicking at a stone. But Betsy did not say anything more just then. The teacher, who boarded round, was staying at Putney Farm at that time. And that evening, as they all sat around the lamp in the south room, Betsy looked up from her game of checkers with Uncle Henry and asked, how can anybody drink up stockings? Mercy, child, what are you talking about? asked Aunt Abigail. Betsy repeated what Anastasia Monahan had said, and was flattered by the rather startled attention given her by the grown-ups. I didn't know that Bud Walker had taken to drinking again, said Uncle Henry. My, that's too bad. "'Who takes care of that child anyhow, now that poor Susie's dead?' Aunt Abigail asked of everybody in general. "'Is he just living there alone with that good-for-nothing stepfather? "'How do they get enough to eat?' said Cousin Anne, looking troubled. "'Apparently, Betsy's question had brought something half-forgotten "'and altogether neglected into their minds. "'They talked for some time after that about Elias.' "'the teacher confirming what Betsy and Stashie had said. "'And we sitting right here with plenty to eat "'and never raising a hand.' "'How you will let things slip out of your mind,' "'said Cousin Anne remorsefully. "'It struck Betsy vividly that Lias was not at all the one they blamed "'for his objectionable appearance. "'She felt quite ashamed to go on with the other things "'she and the other little girls had said, and fell silent.' "'pretending to be very much absorbed in her game of checkers. "'Do you know,' said Aunt Abigail suddenly, "'as though an inspiration had struck her, "'I wouldn't be a bit surprised if that Elmore Pond might adopt Lias "'if he was gone out the right way.' "'Who's Elmore Pond?' asked the schoolteacher. "'Why, you must have seen him. "'That great, big, red-faced, good-natured-looking man "'that comes through here twice a year buying stock.' He lives over Digby Way. But his wife was a Hillsborough girl, Madie Pelham, an awfully nice girl she was too. They never had any children and Madie told me the last time she was back for a visit that she and her husband talked quite often about adopting a little boy. Seems that Mr. Pond has always wanted a little boy. He's such a nice man. Would be a lovely home for a child. But goodness, said the teacher, Nobody would want to adopt such an awful-looking little ragamuffin as that Lias. He looks so meeching, too. I guess his stepfather is real mean to him when he's been drinking, and it's got Elias, so he hardly dares hold his head up. The clock struck loudly. Well, hear that, said Cousin Anne. Nine o'clock and the children not in bed. Molly's most asleep this minute. Trot along with you, Betsy. Trot along, Molly. And Betsy? be sure Molly's nightgown is buttoned up all the way. So it happened that although the grown-ups were evidently going on to talk about Elias Brewster, Betsy heard no more of what they said. She herself went on thinking about Elias while she was undressing, and answering absently little Molly's chatter. She was thinking about him, even after they had gone to bed, had put the light out, and were lying snuggled up to each other, back to front. Their forelegs crooked at the same angle, fitting in together neatly like two spoons in a drawer. She was thinking about him when she woke up, and as soon as she could get hold of Cousin Anne, she poured out a new plan. She had never been afraid of Cousin Anne since the evening Molly had fallen into the wolf pit, and Betsy had seen that pleased smile on Cousin Anne's firm lips. "'Cousin Anne? Couldn't we girls at school get together and sew?' You'd have to help us some and make some nice new clothes for little Elias Brewster and fix him up so he'll look better and maybe that Mr. Pond will like him and adopt him. Cousin Anne listened attentively and nodded her head. Yes, I think that would be a good idea, she said. We were thinking last night we ought to do something for him. If you'll make the clothes, Mother will knit him some stockings and Father will get him some shoes. Mr. Pond never makes his spring trip till late May, so we'll have plenty of time. Betsy was full of importance that day at school, and at recess time, got the girls together on the rocks, and told them all about the plan. Cousin Ann says she'll help us. We can meet at our house every Saturday afternoon till we get them done. It'll be fun. Aunt Abigail telephoned down to the store right away, and Mr. Wilkins says he'll give us the cloth if we'll make it up. Betsy spoke very grandly of making it up, although she had hardly held a needle in her life. And when the Saturday afternoon meetings began, she was ashamed to see how much better Ellen and even Eliza could sew than she. To keep her end up, she was driven to practicing her stitches around the lamp in the evenings, with Aunt Abigail keeping an eye on her. Cousin Anne supervised the sewing on Saturday afternoons, and taught those of the little girls whose legs were long enough how to use the sewing machine. First, they made a little pair of trousers out of an old gray woolen skirt of Aunt Abigail's. This was for practice, before they cut into the piece of new blue serge that the storekeeper had sent up. Cousin Anne showed them how to pin the pattern on the goods, and they each cut out one piece. Those flat, queer-shaped pieces of cloth certainly did look less like a pair of trousers to Betsy than anything she had ever seen. Then one of the girls read out loud, very slowly, the mysterious-sounding directions from the wrapper of the pattern about how to put the pieces together. Cousin Anne helped here a little, particularly as they were about to put the sections together wrong side up. Stashy, as the oldest, did the first basting, putting the notches together carefully, just as they read the instructions aloud. And there, all of a sudden, was a rough little sketch of a pair of knee trousers, without any hem or any waistband, of course, but just the two-legged, complicated shape they ought to be. It was like a miracle to Betsy. Cousin Anne helped them sew the seams on the machine, and they all turned to for the basting of the facings and the finishing they each made one buttonhole. It was the first one Betsy had ever made, and when she got through, she was as tired as though she had run all the way to school and back. Tired, but very proud. Although, when Cousin Anne inspected that buttonhole, she covered her face with her handkerchief for a minute, as though she were going to sneeze. Although, she didn't sneeze at all it took them two Saturdays to finish up that trial pair of trousers, and when they showed the result to Aunt Abigail, she was delighted. Well, to think of that being my old skirt, she said, putting on her spectacles to examine the work. She did not laugh either when she saw those buttonholes, but she got up hastily and went into the next room, where they soon heard her coughing. Then they made a little shirt out of some new blue gingham. Cousin Anne happened to have enough left over from a dress she was making. This thin material was ever so much easier to manage than the gray flannel, and they had the little garment done in no time, even to the buttons and buttonholes. When it came to making the buttonholes, Cousin Anne sat right down with each one and supervised every stitch. You may not be surprised to know that they were a great improvement over the first batch. Then making a great ceremony of it. They began on the store material, working twice a week now, because May was slipping along very fast, and Mr. Pond might be there at any time. They knew pretty well how to go ahead on this one, after the experience of their first pair, and Cousin Anne was not much needed, except as adviser in hard places. She sat there in the room with them, doing some sewing of her own, "'so quiet that half the time they forgot she was there. "'It was great fun, sewing all together and chatting as they sewed. "'A good deal of the time they talked about how splendid it was of them "'to be so kind to little Lias. "'My, I don't believe most girls would put themselves out this way "'for a dirty little boy,' said Stashy complacently. "'No, indeed,' chimed in Betsy. "'It's just like a story, isn't it? "'Working and sacrificing for the poor.' I guess he'll thank us all right for sure, said Ellen. He'll never forget us as long as he lives, I don't suppose. Betsy, her imagination fired by this suggestion, said, I guess when he's all grown up, he'll be telling everybody about how, when he was so poor and ragged, Stashy Monahan and Ellen Peters and Elizabeth Ann and Eliza put in that little girl hastily, very much afraid she would not be given her due share of the glory. Cousin Anne sewed and listened, and said nothing toward the end of May. Two little shirts, two pairs of trousers, two pairs of stockings, two sets of underwear contributed by the teacher, and the pair of shoes Uncle Henry gave were ready. The little girls handled the pile of new garments with inexpressible pride and debated just which way of bestowing them was sufficiently grand be worthy the occasion. Betsy was for taking them to school and giving them to Lias one by one, so that each child could have her thanks separately. But Stashy wanted to take them to the house when Lias's stepfather would be there, and shame him, by showing that little girls had had to do what he ought to have done. Cousin Anne broke into the discussion by asking in her quiet, firm voice, "'Why do you want Lias to know where the clothes come from?' They had forgotten again that she was there, and turned around quickly to stare at her. Nobody could think of any answer to her very queer question. It had not occurred to anyone that there could be such a question. Cousin Anne shifted her ground and asked another, Why did you make these clothes anyhow? They stared again speechless. Why did she ask that? She knew why. Finally, little Molly said in her honest baby way. Why, you know why, Miss Anne. So Elias Brewster will look nice, and Mr. Pond will maybe adopt him. Well, said Cousin Anne, what has that got to do with Elias knowing who did it? Why, he wouldn't know who to be grateful to, cried Betsy. Oh, said Cousin Anne. Oh, I see. You didn't do it to help Elias. You did it to have him grateful to you. I see. Molly is such a little girl it's no wonder she didn't really take in what you girls were up to." She nodded her head wisely, as though now she understood. But if she did, little Molly certainly did not. She had not the least idea what everybody was talking about. She looked from one sober, downcast face to another rather anxiously. What was the matter? Apparently nothing was really the matter, she decided. For after a minute's silence, Miss Anne got up with her usual face of cheery gravity and said, Don't you think you little girls ought to top off this last afternoon with a tea party? There's a new batch of cookies, and you can make yourself some lemonade if you want to. They had these refreshments out on the porch, in the sunshine, with their dolls for guests, and a great deal of chatter for sauce. Nobody said another word about how to give the clothes to Elias, Till, just as the girls were going away, Betsy said, walking along with the two older ones, Say, don't you think it'd be fun to go some evening after dark and leave the clothes on Lias's doorstep and knock and run away quick before anyone comes to the door? She spoke in an uncertain voice and smoothed Deborah's carved wooden curls. Yes, I do, said Ellen, not looking at Betsy but down at the weeds by the road. I think it would be lots of fun. Little Molly playing with Annie and Eliza did not hear this, but she was allowed to go with the older girls on the great expedition. It was a warm, dark evening in late May, with the frogs piping their sweet high notes, and the first of the fireflies wheeling over the wet meadows near the tumble-down house where Lias lived. The girls took turns in carrying the big paper-wrapped bundle and stole along in the shadow of the trees, full of excitement, looking over their shoulders at nothing and pressing their hands over their mouths to keep back the giggles. There was, of course, no reason on earth why they should giggle, which is, of course, the reason why they did. If you've ever been a little girl, you know about that. One window of the small house was dimly lighted, they found, when they came inside of it, and they thrilled with excitement and joyful alarm. Suppose Lias's dreadful stepfather should come out and yell at them. They came forward on tiptoe, making a great deal of noise by stepping on twigs, rustling bushes, crackling gravel under their feet, and doing all the other things that make such a noise at night and never do in the daytime but nobody stirred inside the room with the lighted window. They crept forward and peeped cautiously inside and stopped giggling. The dim light coming from a little kerosene lamp with a smoky chimney fell on a dismal, cluttered room, a bare, greasy wooden table, and two broken-backed chairs with little Lias in one of them. He had fallen asleep with his head on his arms, his pinched, dirty, sad little figure showing in the light from the lamp. His feet dangled high above the floor in their broken, muddy shoes. One sleeve was torn to the shoulder. A piece of dry bread had slipped from his bony little hand, and a tin dipper stood beside him on the bare table. Nobody else was in the room, nor evidently in the darkened, empty, fireless house. As long as she lives, Betsy will never forget what she saw that night through the window. Her eyes grew very hot, and her hands very cold. Her heart thumped hard. She reached for little Molly and gave her a great hug in the darkness. Suppose it were little Molly asleep there, all alone in the dismal, dirty house, with no supper and nobody to put her to bed. She found that Ellen next to her was crying into the corner of her apron. Nobody said a word. Stashy, who had the bundle, walked around soberly to the front door and put it down, and knocked loudly. They all darted away noiselessly to the road, to the shadow of the trees, and waited until the door opened. A square of yellow light appeared, with Lias's figure very small at the bottom of it. They saw him stoop and pick up the bundle and go back into the house. Then they went quickly and silently back, separating at the crossroads with no goodnight greetings. Molly and Betsy began to climb the hill to Putney Farm. It was a very warm night for May, and little Molly began to puff for breath. "'Let's sit down on this rock a while and rest,' she said." They were halfway up the hill now. From the rock, they could see lights in the farmhouses scattered along the valley road, and on the side of the mountain opposite them, like big stars fallen from the multitude above. Betsy lay down on the rock and looked up at the stars. After a silence, little Molly's chirping voice said, "Oh, I thought you said we were going to march up to Elias in school and give him his clothes. Did you forget all about that?" Betsy gave a wriggle of shame as she remembered that plan. No, we didn't forget it, she said. We thought this would be a better way. But how will Elias know who to thank? asked Molly. That's no matter, said Betsy. Yes, it was Elizabeth Ann that was who said that, and meant it too. She was not even thinking of what she was saying. Between her and the stars, thick over her in the black soft sky... She saw again that dirty, disordered room, and the little boy all alone, asleep with a piece of dry bread in his bony little fingers. She looked hard and long at that picture, all the time seeing the quiet stars through it. Then she turned over and hid her face on the rock. She had said her, Now I lay me down, every night since she could remember. But she had never prayed, till she lay there with her face on the rock, saying over and over, Oh God, please, please, please make Mr. Pond adopt Elias. This is your host, Catherine Lopez-Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to Understood Betsy. You can find a link to our podcast on the Marshall Public Library webpage, www.marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.